to Matthew chapter 26. I want to speak today about the Lord's Supper. If you attend regularly, you know that generally the first Sunday of every month, we participate in what we call the Lord's Supper. But it's been quite a few years since I've actually done a teaching on that. And one of the things that I don't want to do is uh, just get involved in a, a, a liturgy or a tradition or a custom and for us not to understand why we do it. It's important to know the meaning of why we raise our hands, the meaning of why we allow spiritual gifts in the church, the reason that sometimes we open up the altar and we have people come forward and we anoint them with oil. These are all things that we believe are based in the scripture and we have incorporated into our worship service. And one of those things that we do on a regular basis is receive the Lord's Supper, receive communion. And uh, when you came in this morning, hopefully you received uh, one of these little disposable cups. If you didn't, if you would just raise your hand right now, we want to make sure that you receive one. And we've got some other hosts coming in. Be patient. Just keep your hand up. If you didn't receive communion, we want to make sure that you uh, receive one. Because at the end of this teaching, we're all going to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus together by receiving what is called the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Suzanne, for uh, your help. Hopefully, we'll have some other help here for Suzanne. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Keep your hand up. Sorry that we missed you at the door when you came in. So uh, here comes Steve. So just keep your hand up and they'll be right there. I, I'm so glad for the body of Christ to Wenatchee First Assembly. The other uh, fifth Sunday, uh, last Sunday, I was standing out in the lobby just looking at the diversity of people who attend Wenatchee First Assembly. Man, there is no mold for the people that attend our church. And I'm glad about that because it represents the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is bigger than the Assemblies of God or the Southern Baptist or the Free Methodist or the Independents or the United Methodist or the Roman Catholics. The body of Christ is compiled of every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So we are diverse. I've had opportunities uh, that the Lord has given me to travel quite a bit in my ministry. You know that. I've taught down in the Caribbean. We've been to South Africa. We've been to Costa Rica and Panama. And one of the wonderful enriching things about that is seeing how people serve the Lord and worship the Lord in their culture. I've been in services out on the Olympic Peninsula in Native American churches where they have smoke prayers that go up to the Lord. Now that's something that would be foreign to us, but very natural for them to use smoke in their worship as incense, smoke prayers. In Africa, of course, the dancing before the Lord is absolutely phenomenal. Different liturgies. I've visited Greek Orthodox churches. I've visited Baptist churches. I've, you know, it's wonderful to know that the body of Christ goes beyond our personal interpretation of the scripture or our personal comfort zone. But the fact is, the way that we interpret scriptures, the way that we read the scriptures, leads to a variety of doctrines. 
Some people baptize by immersion, some sprinkle. Some believe that what we're doing today is symbolic. Some believe that the bread and the juice actually turn into the literal body of Christ. So there's different interpretations of our doctrines. But if we can lay all that aside and just say, thank God for the body of Christ, no matter how they worship, as long as they are looking at the cross of Jesus as the sole source of their salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And one of the things that uh, is common, whether you're in Africa or the Philippines at a Baptist church or a Methodist church, one of the things that is common, despite all of our little doctrinal differences, is Christians throughout the century has always observed in some form or fashion of what we call the Lord's Supper. It's the one thing that I have found, no matter where I've gone, is kind of the constant, the one thing that we all come back to. Now, we might see it differently, but we still observe it because we know it's important. Why is it important? That's what we want to talk about today. So let's take a, a look at uh, Matthew chapter 26. This is the story of the Last Supper as recorded by St. Matthew, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 26, it says, while they were eating. Now, let's stop for a minute. Why were they eating? Because this was the Passover feast. This is the Old Testament story of the Passover. They had this feast, which we know was very symbolic. They had bitter roots. They had a, a lamb shank. They had different things that represented things from their past. And these were Jewish people who had accepted Christ as the Messiah, but they were still Jewish. And here they are gathered together eating, and Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke the bread, meaning that it was a loaf. It wasn't a little cracker like we have today. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. I love that, all of you, diversity. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this particular um, practice, you might call it a sacrament. We use the word ordinance. We call it by different names, and we'll look at that in a minute. And we understand it theologically different. Some churches observe it more frequently than others. Some have communion every Sunday. Others have it once a month. Some have it once a quarter or once a year. When I was going to Oral Roberts University, we were able to take communion every single day by going to the prayer chapel. It was available at 7 a.m. every morning, so it was daily. So it's not about frequency. It's really that we are obedient and we observe it. 
Because this is something that is not a doctrine of the assemblies of God. This is something that Jesus told us to do. And if Jesus told us to do it, we better do it. Now, in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. And Luke records his words this way. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we have Matthew saying, he's saying, this is my body. And we have Luke saying, you do this in remembrance of me. So already you can see between Matthew and Luke, there were different ways of seeing what this Lord's Supper, this sacrament, this ordinance really represented. As assemblies of God, we believe communion is symbolic. We believe that Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me. Now let's take a brief look at the significance of the ceremony um, and what it means. And this might be brand new to some of you. Some of you uh, just need reminded. There's different names, okay? Now we call it generally the Lord's Supper, which we get from the term that St. Paul used in 1 Corinthians. Very often in evangelical churches, 1 Corinthians 11 is the go-to chapter to read where St. Paul is recalling what Jesus said, and he calls it the Lord's Supper. But commonly, throughout the world, outside the evangelical circle, it's called the Eucharist or called communion. And I want to talk about those things because they're all good names. There's not a right or wrong. It's simply that we're observing it. Eucharist, I love that term. It means thanksgiving. Are you thankful today? Are you thankful for what Jesus has done for you? Now that's taken straight from verse 26 of our text, which says while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And what did he do? First thing he did, he gave thanks. He gave thanks even before he broke it. Now, if you have a lexicon and you can go into the original words, you'll see that Greek word is uh, euharisto, which actually is translated Eucharist. So that is a biblical word, Eucharist. It means thanksgiving. And in calling what we're doing the Eucharist, Man, we're reminded that first and foremost, this is a meal of thanksgiving. This is a meal that we can say, thank you, God, for all you've done. I don't understand it, but I know that you have saved me from my sin. You filled me with your spirit. You're guiding me. You're shaping my mind through the scriptures. Your Holy Spirit comforts me. I know that you have healed me. You've done. It's a feast of thanksgiving. Eucharist is a really good word because it reminds us that we're doing this to give thanks. So many things to be thankful for. But most important, John 3.16, we're thankful because God so loved us that when he saw we were bound by sin, when we were held captive to darkness and selfishness, that he sent Jesus Christ on a rescue mission. And he ransomed us. He died on the cross for our sins, even though we don't deserve it. Hallelujah. No wonder we can be thankful. 
Taking the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist with an attitude of thanksgiving helps us to remember our salvation is a gift, a gift freely giving. There's nothing that any of us have done to earn our salvation. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift. So when we take the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today, remember to take it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, some churches call this communion. We often refer to it as communion as well. Again, there's no right or wrong name. The Lord's Supper is called communion, or in some of the more formal churches, holy communion, because it helps us remember this is a holy moment. We shouldn't do this frivolously or casually. One of the ancient church fathers, Damascene, wrote that this, com this ceremony is called communion for two reasons. This is from way back, like fourth century stuff. He said, first of all, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're entering into a communion with Christ. You are saying, Lord, I remember and I receive by faith salvation. I receive by faith forgiveness for my sin. It's communion with Christ. Now, we as Protestants don't teach that there's anything mystical or magical about the bread or the wine. In fact, the Assemblies of God, as I stated, takes the position that this is purely symbolic. But friends, what they symbolize is really important. Really important. It symbolizes the communion we have with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not through coming to church, not through whether or not we speak in tongues, not whether we're paying our tithe. It symbolizes that we have communion with God because of the precious blood of Jesus. Don't ever forget, friends, it's his sacrificial death on the cross that the barrier between God and man was broken. And through Jesus... Now you and I can not just know about God, we can walk with God. We can have a personal relationship with the living Christ. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, if you're taking notes, but now in Christ Jesus, doesn't say now by my good performance, now by my church membership. No, it says now in Christ Jesus, Jerry who was once far off, you can put your own name in there, has been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.13, look it up for yourself. It's through the blood that you've been brought near. You have communion with Christ. So the Lord's Supper symbolizes the communion we have with Christ. But it also symbolizes something else. The communion that we have with other brothers and sisters. Last summer, the Wilkowskis, they're strategic partners in Indonesia. And remember, they led us in communion. And it was so wonderful. These people who live on the other side of the world, who work primarily in a Muslim country, who their whole approach to the gospel, not the message of the gospel, but their approach to sharing the gospel is so much different than America. Yet they led us in communion, and it helped us at that time, and I hope we'll remember today. There are 
millions of people on planet Earth today who are receiving the Lord's Supper or communion. They might have different color skin. They might speak different languages. They might have different cultural nuances to their services. But friends, there are brothers and there are sisters in the Lord. We need to remember that. This communion helps us not only recognize our relationship with our Lord, but helps us recognize the relationship we have with one another. Even here in the Wenatchee Valley, those who might go to Sage Hills, those who might go to Faith Presbyterian, those who might go to New Song, those who might go to Grace City, those who might go to Calvary Crossroads, whatever. We have communion because we're a family of God. It helps me remember something that I learned as a little kid. <laughs> the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's level. We are all equally in need of God's grace. Every one of us. I don't care what your financial status is. I don't care what your nationality is. We're all equal when it comes to needing the grace and the forgiveness of God. Man, and those who have been saved and sanctified for 50 or 60 years are on the same level with some of you that have just started your walk with Jesus. We're all totally dependent upon the Lord. We share a common guilt of sin, and we share a common um, need for forgiveness. And we share that common acknowledgement that it's only through the blood of Jesus that we find that forgiveness. So when we partake of communion or the Lord's Supper, we're communing with God, but also one another. And I don't want you to get confused by different names. Doesn't matter. Communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, they all make sense. We're taking the bread, we're taking the juice. Just let's take it with an attitude of thanksgiving for the mercy that God has shown you. And as we take the bread and cup, let it be a time of communion between you and God and you and your fellow believers. Let's talk about how we interpret the bread and the juice to be symbols. I said it a, a minute ago, we teach the bread and juice are symbolic of the sacrificial death of Christ. The bread, now remember when Jesus and his disciples had the last supper together, it wasn't a church service per se, it was the Passover meal. And this is what the Lord's Supper is founded upon. Now follow me for just a minute. It was the Passover meal that was a meal of remembrance. That's what the Lord's Supper is founded on, on the Jewish Passover meal, which in itself was symbolic. Jesus incorporated some of those same symbols that they used 2,000 years ago into the Eucharist. In fact, if we went back to the Old Testament, we don't have time today, but you'll see the Passover meal, the leader of that uh, meal breaks a loaf of unleavened bread. And he says, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. It wasn't the actual bread that they ate. It was 
symbolic of the bread of affliction. So that's one of the reasons that we embrace this idea of symbolism. Jesus gave that symbolism new meaning, actually, when he said, this is my body. Now, we don't believe he was speaking literally. But I want to pause for a minute here and warn you, do not judge or criticize those who might interpret it as literal. We need to respect them. In fact, the Catholics probably have as many scriptures to support their position as we Protestants do. Historically, for 1,500 years, Christians truly believed that the bread and the juice turned into the actual body and blood of Christ. That is not a new teaching. Symbolism is a newer teacher than the actual body and blood of Christ. It wasn't until the Reformation period. And now we look at a lot of the I am statements that Jesus made. You probably know there's nine of them, nine I am statements. He also said, I am the door, I am the gate. He used a lot of symbolism in his teaching. So most of us who were birthed out of the Reformation movement back in the 16th century, which we as Protestants, we as evangelicals, we as Assemblies of God, that is our roots, we've chosen to take these words of Jesus symbolically, as I said in the Old Testament, the bread of affliction. But friends, do not be critical of those who choose to see this as the literal, actual blood and body. It's mysterious. It takes a lot more faith for people to believe that than it does for us to believe it's symbolic. And as I said, they have 1,500 years of church history on their side of interpretation. We believe the bread symbolizes his body, which we all will agree Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, all three major uh, strains of Christianity, it means that his body was about to be broken. It symbolizes to all of us that his life is about to be taken. He is about ready to be crucified on the cross. It's referring to his death. And we know in order for us to be saved... It was necessary that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, die. When we partake of the bread, we're reminding ourselves that was a sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross, not for his sin, but for our sin. Man, that's powerful. Through his death, he paid the price for our sins because we couldn't pay it for ourselves. When you partake of the bread today, the fact that Jesus' body was broken for you means that he died on the cross for you. Now, the juice or the wine, we use juice. Alcoholism is a, a terrible, terrible thing, particularly in America. We use juice that has not been fermented into wine. But whether it's juice or wine... <laughs> It still symbolizes the precious blood of Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, we see it again and again and again. Blood is required for reconciliation with God. In the Old Testament, it could have been a a lamb, it could have been a dove or a bird. The book of Hebrews, the New Testament, says it very clearly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I know that's a hard concept, and particularly in this day and age, a lot of modern people struggle with that. And I am not here to defend the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's hard for me to understand it, let alone defend it. I'm just going to say this. Jesus himself said, it's through the shedding of his blood. In other words, through his death, that we're forgiven. And if that's what Jesus said, then it's good enough for me. I want to give you five verses real quickly if you're taking notes. First one is Romans 5, 9 that says we are justified through the blood. We're justified through the blood. Ephesians 1, 7 says we are redeemed through the blood. Colossians 1, 20 says we have peace with God through his blood. And then 1 John 1, 7 says that we have been purified through his blood. So there's New Testament scriptures that say it's through his blood. We have justification, we have redemption, we have peace, we're made pure. It's through the blood. And we used to sing when I was a kid all the time, that old chorus that says, there is power, power, power in the blood. The wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus. It's good for us to remember. It serves to remind us that salvation is not free. It is for us, it's a gift, but it costs Jesus his life. And because of that, our walk with Jesus is not something we should be taking lightly. (laughs) He's serious about his relationship with us, and we need to be serious about our relationship with him. Jesus was willing to die that I might be saved. He was willing to shed his blood that my sins might be washed away. And the great thing about that is that it's not just that I get to go to heaven when I die. That's part of it, but that's just a fringe benefit. Bible also says it means that I can live in this life here and now free from the power of sin. Sometimes we don't embrace that biblical truth. We say we're free from sin, but we act like we're slaves. But it's through his blood, through his death, Jesus broke the power of sin. And you and I can be free from it today. Romans, look it up. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we are no longer slaves to sin. Now this is really good news for all of us who are here today. And if you struggle with prideful thoughts, you can be set free because Jesus paid the price for that freedom. We sang about it today. 
You struggle with lustful thoughts. You struggle with controlling your temper. You struggle with lying or gossip or bitterness or anger or jealousy or any of that stuff. Man, when you take communion this morning, realize it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's freedom for the here and now. Jesus paid the price for our freedom with his blood. There's power in the blood. And take a moment before you drink the juice this morning and say, thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood for me. This blood that gives me strength from day to day. The blood that will never lose its power. The blood that removes the penalty and the power and the presence of sin from my life. Thank God I'm set free because of the blood of Christ. Now, I know there are people here that say, well, I can't say those words because I just can't get rid of my sin. It just won't let me go. (laughs) Friends, today the Lord can set you free as you take communion. Not by your own power. Willpower never works. (laughs) By the power of the blood of Jesus. It can wash away your guilt. It'll break the stronghold of sin on your life. So surrender yourself to Jesus today. Say, God, I want the power of the shed blood of Jesus at work in my life this week. And this bread and this cup connect us with a supernatural power that we have not even the capacity to begin to understand. The body and blood of Jesus broken for you, shed for you, so that we can live a victorious life. Third thing before we partake of communion, let's talk about the purpose of this part of our liturgy, this ritual that we call the Lord's Supper. Why do we do it? Well, first of all, because Jesus told us to do it, right? <laughs> but one of the reasons we do, as I mentioned before, we, it's to take a look backward. It's to celebrate his redemptive power in our life. That's what the Passover was about. That's why the Old Testament told those generations of Israelites, do this so you can remember what I did for your forefathers. We celebrate with thanksgiving. We celebrate the times that Jesus came through for us. We look back at him comes to my mind, great is thy faithfulness. Haven't you found that true? This helps us to look back. But another purpose for the Lord's Supper is we're to look forward. And we read that earlier in verse 29. Remember Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. So another purpose for the Lord's Supper is for us to look forward, to anticipate that wonderful promise that we have that Jesus is coming again. His second coming is still in front of us. And when we experience Jesus face-to-face in his kingdom, he will partake of communion with us. He's reminding us, friends, that this world is not all there is. Sometimes we get this tunnel vision Oh, we're so worried about this and that. And it's all temporal. 
But someday Jesus Christ will return. He will establish his kingdom and we will live throughout eternity in his presence. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we not only look back to his death, we look forward to the establishment of his heavenly kingdom. As Colossians says, and we need to remind ourselves all the time, as disciples of Jesus, we need to set our minds on things above. And this is another way that we do that. We set our mind on the things above. Today, as you partake of the bread and cup, look back at what God has done for you, but also look forward to what God has planned for you. One final note I just want to say before we partake of the Lord's Supper today. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's a warning that says not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthily manner. And I want to address that because I've known people who have been in services like this who've not taken communion because they just feel so guilty about the sin in their life. They feel they're so unworthy. And I want you to know I feel unworthy. We all should feel unworthy. Because you know something? We are unworthy. We're unworthy of this great gift that God has given us. When you get to the point that you think you're worthy enough to take communion, then you should start worrying. Taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner It's not about feeling unworthy. It means going through the motions without giving serious thought to what this means. Going through the motions without realizing there really was a Jesus who really did go to the cross, who really did die for you. If you're serious about it, as we prepare to take communion, I just invite you to turn your heart toward Jesus. Ask him into your life to cleanse you from sin, to remove anything that stands between you and your creator, your God. Ask him to purify your heart. If you feel guilty about something, just ask his forgiveness. The Bible says he will forgive you and cleanse you from that unrighteousness. And remember, it's the Eucharist because we come with thanksgiving. Remember, it's holy communion because it symbolizes the walk we can now have with God through our faith in Jesus. It symbolizes the kinship of millions of people around the world, those that you work with, those that you rub shoulders with here in this valley that might have different styles of liturgy, might even have different interpretations of things, but they're still your brother and your sister because they're looking to the cross for their salvation. And let's remember not only to look back, but let's look forward. There's a better day coming and it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus and when we partake with him on that day. As a worship team comes back, would you just bow your head in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity we've had to take time to look deep into your word, 
to talk about something that is so very important to you and to those who follow you. Lord, we realize that no one on this earth has a corner on the truth. And Father, today we come with a sense of humility. We come with a sense of gratitude. We come with a certain sense of unworthiness to partake of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper. And right now, Lord, we remember what you've done for us. You lived a sinless life. You went to the cross. You were humiliated, spit upon, tortured, made fun of, mocked. Yet you did it for us. And we thank you. And we thank you, Jesus, for walking with us in this life. Some of us have been through very difficult times. Through disease, through incarcerations, through divorces, through bankruptcies, through imprisonment, the guilt of sin. But Lord, through it all, you've been there. And today you offer yourself to us afresh and anew. And we receive forgiveness. We receive life eternal. And Lord, we also look forward. Help us, Lord, to be focused on that day that you will come again, that you will rule and reign in righteousness, with justice. We thank you, Lord, that you've received us into your family. Not because of how we believe, but because of whom we believe in. Our belief today is not in juice or bread. Our belief today is in Jesus Christ. And today we take these symbols to help us, Lord, remember, to rejoice, to receive, to be strengthened. You'll take your disposable cup and open the smaller end that has the bread in it. Take the bread out. And will you just take a moment and thank Jesus for his broken body? We give thanks today, Lord. Your broken body. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. Now turn your cup over. You can take the cover off the juice. The blood of Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. There's power in the blood. You can be set free today. Let's take the juice together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Amen.